All right, well, let me ask you now to go ahead and take out your Bibles and open them up to Romans chapter 8. We are continuing to work our way verse by verse, chapter by chapter, through this wonderful and mighty letter of the Apostle Paul. But it is more than a letter written by Paul. It is the very Word of God. And this morning we come to verse 31. I want to read verses 31 and 32. Look with me there. This is the Word of God. Let's read verses 31 and 32. Here's what we read. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? So here we have three questions. And they are more than simple questions. These questions are given to make a statement. These are questions that are intended to elicit from you and from me certain conclusions that will encourage us and that will comfort us. Notice that first question. What then shall we say to these things? I want to make three points about that first question. And the first is this. This is a statement of worship. It is a question, but it is a statement of worship. What then shall we say to these things? Paul was a verbose man. Paul was a man of words. Here we find Paul almost speechless. He is standing in awe of the truths that he has just articulated. And these truths leave him grasping for what to say next. What has Paul already said in Romans 8 that is leaving him almost speechless? Let's just remember some of the highlights. Verse 1, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Dear Christian, There will be no hell for you. You have been rescued from the flames of the wrath of God by Jesus. Verses 3 and 4. God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. The righteous requirement of the law is perfection. We have all failed to meet that righteous requirement. We're all sinners. And what has God done for us? Paul says He sent His Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. God became a man for us. And as a man, He fulfilled the righteous requirements of the law in our place. He accomplished righteousness for us. And then... God condemned sin in the flesh. He judged all of our sins on Christ at the cross if we believe. 
If we are Christians, Jesus died in our place. He suffered for His people that God's wrath might be appeased and that we could go to heaven. And then it got better. Verse 9, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. In other words, Paul taught us that Christians have been made spiritual people. We were once dead in our trespasses and sins, but now we've been made spiritually alive with the very Spirit of God Himself dwelling in our souls. God has taken up His home in our hearts. Verse 11, If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Not only has God made your soul alive, but He has promised that there's going to be a day when He will resurrect your dead body and make your dead body alive and perfected. You have been promised a day of resurrection. A day when your frail, broken, dead body will be made new and perfect and fit for a new heavens and a new earth. And then it got better. Verse 15, You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Christian, you have been adopted by God. By God, you have been adopted. You have been made His child. He is now your Father, committed to your eternal welfare. You are an heir of God and a fellow heir with Christ. There is an inheritance coming your way. The best part of that inheritance is God Himself. You now have access to God as your Father. The holy, holy, holy God Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth, has graciously humbled Himself to be your Father. Verse 18. Verse 18. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. There is a glory ahead for us as Christians that will make all of the sufferings of this present time seem minuscule. Your present troubles today, as much as they may frustrate you or hurt you right now, will on that day seem like a speck of dust when compared to the glory that is coming. Verse 26, The Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. When we don't know what to pray for, In this groaning, fallen world of ours, the Spirit of God is interceding for us. The Spirit of God is calling out to God on our behalf, on your behalf. The Spirit of God's prayers are always according to the will of God and therefore they are always answered. There is never a moment in your life, dear Christian, where the Spirit of God is not interceding presently for you on earth, just as Christ is presently interceding for you in heaven. Verse 28. Verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, and all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. Everything, absolutely everything, is being worked by God for your good. 
big things, small things, near things, far things, past things, present things, future things. Sounds like a Dr. Seuss book, doesn't it? Everything, absolutely everything, is being masterfully worked by God to bring about your eternal salvation. And then we just finished the golden chain of salvation, verses 29 and 30. Those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. Those whom He predestined, He also called. Those whom He called, He also justified. Those whom He justified, He also glorified. Christian, you are eternally secure in the plan and purpose of God. He predestined you to be like Jesus and His plans never fail. You've been justified, you will be glorified. He who began this good work in you will bring it to completion. Jesus is the author and the finisher of your faith. You are safe, you are secure, dear Christian, in the hands of God. If you know Jesus, your eternal salvation is guaranteed. Friends, what more can Paul say to bring comfort to your soul? What else could he say? to give you reason for real strength and joy. There is a reason this chapter is called The Great Eight. The Gospel and its implications have been unpacked. Paul has been saying in this chapter, Dear Christian, you are wonderfully, you are completely, you are forever blessed. And it's all of grace. Mount Hermon, are you not amazed at what God has done for you? Are you not amazed at what He is doing and will do for you? And does it not humble you to the dust? Does it not fill you with gratitude and sheer wonder? And after unpacking all of these things, Paul says, what more can I say? Where where do I go? from all of this glory that I've just unpacked? What do you say when you've just proclaimed the greatest news ever and it's greater than anyone could have imagined? This is a statement of worship. This is Paul's statement of jaw-dropped, tongue-tied, put your hand over your mouth and just savor it, worship. But second, this first question is a direct challenge to our unbelieving, complaining, fretting hearts. It is a direct challenge to our unbelieving, complaining, fretting hearts. Do you remember how Romans 7 ended? Back in Romans 7, verse 14, we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. I do not understand my own actions. I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Verse 18, I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Verse 24, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And even in chapter 8, we learned about the groaning of creation and the groaning of our own souls in this world. And all of this might lead us to complain. All of, us, all of this might lead us to grumble and to doubt God. Our struggles and our sufferings tempt us towards unbelief. 
They tempt us towards discontentment. They tempt us towards worry. And then here comes God with verses 28, verse 29, verse 30. Everything's being worked by God for your good. Everything has been predetermined to glorify you at the end. It's 100% settled that you are going to spend eternity in paradise in God's presence. At His right hand are pleasures forevermore. These verses are meant for you to preach to yourself. To speak to your doubt. To speak to your worry. Doubt, what have you got to say now? Cancer, it's being worked for my good to bring me to the day when I will be glorified. What are you going to say now, worry? Right? Despair, I have the Holy Spirit of God interceding for me. What have I got to be afraid of? Put that in your pipe and smoke it, worry. Right? Take that despair. That's what this question is. It's a direct challenge to our hearts. What possible reason could we have to complain now? Then, the third point about this first question is this. This is a question with an answer. This is a question with an answer. What then shall we say to these things? There are some sermons that leave you forever changed. Um, There are sermons that are used by God to so affect you that you never forget hearing them and the way they affected you. I was living in Pascagoula, Pascagoula. I was living in Pascagoula, Mississippi. I can remember cutting the grass in our yard. I'm pushing the push mower. I have uh, my MP3 player on. I have the headphones up way too loud so that I can hear the sermon over the roar of the lawnmower. Kids, don't do that. It's terrible for your ears. Probably why I can't hear anything now. But I had this, this, this sermon on in my, in my headphones. They're really loud. And I'm listening to John Piper preach on this verse, Romans 8, verse 31. I don't think I've heard that sermon since that day, but I can still hear him preaching it. And I can still hear him saying, What then shall we say to these things? We say it again. And we say it again. And we say it again in a thousand different ways. What do you say when you've just said the greatest truth in the world, the gospel and its implications, and you've proclaimed the glories of Christ? What do you say next? You say it again. And you keep saying it. And you never stop saying it for the rest of your life. And I can remember him preaching that answer. This is the answer to that question. What shall we say to these things? You say it again, which is what Paul was going to do in the next verses of Romans 8. He's just going to re-say it all in a way that is different and helps you see it anew and afresh. And as Piper was preaching, my heart was just swelling up with affirmation saying, yes, yes, it is the greatest message in the world and we must never stop saying it. We must keep saying it and keep saying it. I absolutely loved working with teenagers. And at that time, things seemed from a human perspective, things seemed to be going well. We were taking youth group trips with over 100 kids going. And people around Pascagoula knew about the things that were happening at our church and how the, the youth ministry had exploded. And it was just it was a real exciting time. Looking back, I see it was a lot of gimmicks and a lot of stuff that, that, that was really behind it. Probably not much God that was actually at work. Um, but at the time, everything just it seemed to be going great. The church that we were at loved our family, cared for us. 
But as I heard Piper preaching this, we got to keep saying this message. We got to keep saying this message. I knew, I mean, we, I can't stay here playing games with teenagers. I want to go somewhere where I want to, where I get to proclaim this message week after week after week after week. I don't want to stop saying these these things. These are the greatest truths imaginable. In Mount Hermon, I should probably say that I am extremely grateful to you that I have the greatest job in the world because I get to preach this gospel again and again and again in a thousand different ways from a thousand different verses week in and week out. And I would not trade it for anything. I love it. I absolutely love it. What then shall we say to these things? Look at Paul's second question. Paul's second question. If God is for us, who can be against us? This is, this is how he resays it now. This is how he really summarizes everything he's been saying in Romans chapter 8. This is him speaking to doubt and to worry and to despair. Despair? If God is for us, who can be against us? What are you worried about? Paul has just shown us what it means for God to be for us. And now he is saying in light of everything I've just said, what can possibly be against you? Now, in one sense, we could say, well, there's a lot of things against us. We do have real enemies. This world is constantly against us, seeking to allure us into a wasted life, a trivial life, a sensual life, a life away from the things of God. Of course, we have our flesh against us every day, tempting us towards countless sins. We have a real enemy, the devil. He is real. He is a spiritual being. He has his demons seeking to wreak havoc in our lives. There are militant Muslims. There are angry feminists. There are bitter atheists against us. There are lethal viruses that we can catch that will kill us. Many of us live in Rocky Mount, the fourth most violent small city in the, in the country, as, as we keep being told. What, what can be against us? Maybe a gang member, maybe a thief that would come into our house and steal our things in order to, to get money from us. There's lots of enemies, Paul. Lots of enemies. And Paul was speaking to the Christians in Rome. These Christians have already been suffering. And their suffering is about to get ten times worse. Emperor Nero lit his gardens with the bodies of Christians being used as the torches for the gardens. These are the Christians he's writing to. Some of the Christians hearing this letter read in Rome were likely killed in the Colosseum before an amused, cheering crowd. Make no mistake, there are many people and many things who are against us. And Paul knows it. He's going to say in verse 36, For your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. So how can Paul say, if God is for us, who can be against us? Well, dear Christians, in light of Romans 8.28, in light of Romans 8.29, in light of Romans 8.30, there is nothing ultimately against you. Romans 8.28, everything is working for your ultimate good. 
Romans 8.29, God has determined that you will be like Jesus. Verse 30, He's going to accomplish that plan and everything that happens in your life is bringing you to the day when you will be glorified and be like Jesus. John Murray says, in the last analysis, there is no against in the orbit of the interests of the people of God. He says the very word against doesn't exist for a Christian. The word against has no meaning for a Christian because in the ultimate scheme of things, there is nothing, absolutely nothing, absolutely no one, absolutely nothing that is truly against you. In the end of things, everything is for you because God is working everything to bring about your eternal happiness. So that even what seems to be against you today is not really against you. Every circumstance of your life is being marshaled by God to bring you safely to heaven and to give you eternal happiness. And so whether it's lions in the Colosseum, whether it's militant Muslims, whether it's a violent drug addict breaking into your home, whether it's cancer, whether it's a lost job, At the end of the day, God is working it all for you. Mount Hermon, do you see how living in a world where everything is ultimately working for you frees you to make radical decisions? Other people make their decisions based on their insecurity. You don't have insecurity. You may not know that, you may not feel that. You don't have insecurity. There is no one on planet earth more secure than you. You are more secure than the gold in Fort Knox, I assure you, in the hands of God. How does that affect the decisions you make? Two jobs set before you. One job looks easy. You know you can handle the work. And all the folks you'll be working around are already Christians. Here's a job that's a little more difficult, a little more challenging, You wonder if you can rise to it. And there's going to be a lot of folks there who aren't believers who need to hear the gospel. How are you going to decide where to work? Is your decision going to be solely based on money? Is it going to be solely based on whether you can handle the work? Or is your decision going to be based on, I am secure in Christ. He's going to take care of me. He's going to take care of my family. He's going to give me what I need. Therefore, let me see the needs of these people who need the gospel. And let me see what I can do to make a difference. Think about this all the time in our community and people who scoff when they learn where we live in Rocky Mount. And I just want to say, why would you not want to live there? I don't want to live where where everybody around me is already well off and seems happy and has no needs and everybody goes to church. And no, no. Yes, it's a little more risky. Yes, it's a little more dangerous. Yes, there's a little more trials and tribulations. But we're we're secure. These are the people that need Jesus. Let us learn to make our decisions based on the security that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you willing to sacrifice a little more, to be a little bit more risky, to be a little bit more vulnerable for the sake of others because God is for you and therefore nothing is against you? This truth ought to give us such courage 
in our personal evangelism. Sometimes we can be so paralyzed by fear. What's that other person going to think about me if I start talking about Jesus? What's this going to do to our relationship if I bring up Jesus and we allow that fear of man to keep us from obeying God? But dear church, if God is working all for our good, what do we have to fear? Who can be against you now? In boldness, in confidence, we ought to open our mouths and we ought to speak. We ought to not be afraid. We ought to not be worried. Mount Hermon, there are days of testing coming upon the church in America. Before we were allowed to take stands for what we believe with little fear of retribution. But that's beginning to change. We're beginning to see a day in which Christians will face consequences for the stands that they take. And you're going to have more friends and you're going to have more family members and you're going to have more neighbors having conversations with you around and they're going to talk about those narrow-minded people that won't let men who love men get married. And they're going to look at you and say, don't you agree? And you're going to be weird and odd and, and called hateful if you stand on your Christian beliefs. And you won't stand unless you are resting in the security that you have in Christ. Unless you know from here to here, God is for me. You won't stand. And so our roots have to go deep into this passage. Richard Sibbs says this. He says, there is a strange confidence, a strange confidence seated in the hearts of God's children that they thus that they thus dare hell and earth and all infernal powers. That they set God so high in their hearts that they dare say with a spirit of confidence, who shall be against us? They may kill us, but they shall not hurt us. The worst that anyone can do to us is send us to heaven and make us partakers of what we desire most. It's the worst. God has built a fortress around each of His children. It is the fortress of His decree. He has decreed from eternity past that we shall be forever blessed in the heavenly kingdom. This decree is wrapped around us like a fortress in which we live. It is a fortress that can never be breached. And therefore, we ought not to live in this world as a timid people. We ought not to live as cowardly sons and daughters of God. It makes no sense. Know that you are forever protected. Know that everything is now your servant and give yourself to bold and unreserved obedience because there are billions who still need the Gospel of Christ. Don't let an unbelieving, sinful sense of insecurity keep you from being what you've been called to be. Fulfill your callings with bravery. Goliath may come out against you, but he is no match for you because you have God for you. 
The world may rage against the church of Christ, but the church of Christ is safe and the gates of hell shall never prevail against her. Isaiah fifty four seventeen. No weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed. You shall refute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord. Their vindication is from me, declares the Lord. And so let me close. Unbelievers, unbelievers in this room, there is a word for you here. All this time I've been speaking about Christians and their great security. The question for Christians is if God is for you, who can be against you? But dear unbeliever, that question is reversed for you. If God is against you, who can be for you? If God is against you this morning, who can be for you? What refuge refuge will you turn to? It does not matter if every person on planet earth is for you. If God is against you, you are in grave trouble. If in this life you are healthy, you are wealthy, you are wise, you are rich, you are popular, but God is against you, you are in deep trouble. Because all of your health, successes, riches, and popularity will not help you one iota when you stand before the judgment seat of Christ. If God is against you, then a just wrath that is higher than the mountains, that is deeper than the oceans, is going to come against you on the last day. Dear unbeliever, everything is being worked by God to bring you to the day of your retribution. Dear unbeliever, everything in your life is being worked by God to bring you to the day when you will stand before Him and there will be nowhere you can turn to and there will be no place you can hide. Your day of condemnation is inevitable. Every tick-tock of the clock is a ticking of time moving closer to the day. If God is against you, there is nowhere to turn except to Him for mercy through His Son, Jesus Christ. Your only hope is to be reconciled to God. And the only way to have peace with God is through faith in Jesus. He lived and died and did everything necessary so that you could have peace with God. Turn from your sins. Trust the Lord Jesus and be saved. Mount Hermon, God is for you. Let me close with this word to you who are believers. Are you for God? God is for you. Are you for Him? Words of Spurgeon. You must take your post, every one of you, on one side or the other. If the Lord is God, then follow Him. If Baal, then follow Him. But on one side or the other, you must be on, I beg you. If God has been for you, if God has defended you, then stand up. Don't ever deny a jot of Christ's truth. Not a hair of the head of Christ's truth must ever be suffered to be touched with the smell of the fire of compromise. Stand up and bear witness 
against regeneration by baptism and those who use popish words and would have us believe that it is right to attach another sense to them. Or we would say in our day, let us stand up against those who deny the authority of Scripture. Let us stand up against Darwinian, atheistic, evolutionary thought. Let us stand up against the militant secularists of our day. Let us not loosen the commands of God. And most importantly of all, do not allow the gospel of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone to ever be compromised. Spurgeon says, take your part with Christ and His despised people. And when one day comes, when He shall distribute His rewards, happy shall that man be who never flinched. And blessed shall he be and shall she be who stood fast in the evil day and stood still in the integrity of the Lord and in the firmness of His truth, firm even to the end. Mount Hermon, I am preaching to you the awesome truth that in every circumstance God is for you. Therefore, let us live for Him. Let's pray.